Hey everyone, welcome to Savage to Sage, where we explore the evolution of entrepreneurs. In this show, we hear from leaders on the challenges and breakthroughs that have shaped them on their journey toward becoming a sage. Welcome back everybody to season two of Savage to Sage. I'm first going to acknowledge that it's been over six months since I last released an episode, and that was mostly purposeful, somewhat accidental, purposeful in the sense of I chose to prioritize my own mental and psychological health and also to, on another hand, focus on the explosive growth that we've had at Fullstack, doubling our business in the last year, as well as doubling my family in the last year. My wife and I had our second child in the middle of the pandemic last year, late in 2020. I've had other priorities to focus on, and I've taken a pause from being behind the microphone interviewing people, and I've missed it. Today, I have the joy of being joined and interviewed by my friend and mentor, Mike Kelly, who's been a huge inspiration for me in my Savage to Sage journey myself. He, along with my co-founder, Don Lively, invited me to be a partner with them on this journey that we call Full Stack which does turnkey HR for emerging companies. And this is not Mike's only rodeo. In fact, he's just our board president now. He is the managing partner of Developer Town and also has his hands in a number of other companies and um, advising a number of startups and scale-ups as well. He is also the host of Startup Competitors, which is a great podcast if you haven't listened to it yet. Mike flipped the mic on me and interviewed me, switched roles, And I got to share a little bit more about what I've been learning through Savage to Sage and what I'm anticipating for season two, and a lot about why I started this and why I'm continuing. So I hope this is insightful for you and the beginning of some great interviews, including an interview that I did with Mike today that we'll release after this episode. So cheers, and um, would love to hear from you. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn at Daniel Fuller Indy or my email, daniel.fuller at fullstackpeo.com. Thanks. Welcome back, everybody, to Savage to Sage. This is Daniel, the host. And today I have the pleasure of being joined by Mike Kelly. Hello. We are actually sitting here in Mike's tiny home here in developer town. We're not going to do video today, so we'll spare you of our mugs. However, um, I have the chance for Mike today to flip the microphone back on me and um, interview me just about why I started the podcast. But first, Mike, I wanted to start with your own Savage to Sage journey. I know you've been an entrepreneur for some time, and um, I know you have especially embodied what I think of those three pillars of the journey that I talked about before on the show, and that's self-awareness, that's a robust practice of self-care, and then that's multiplying your talents and other people and drawing out the best in others. And I know you have a practice of self-care. I know you're a very self-aware person. So what was it that prompted you down this path toward really looking inward and not just focusing on the external success of the businesses and the ventures that you've done? First of all, it would be off-brand for me not to say I am still a savage uh, (laughs) and less sage because that's important to me. The question there is, what got me to focus inward? Mm -hmm. Uh, Broke my back and didn't really have a choice. So when I, about eight, 
ish years ago, eight, nine years ago now, I injured my back. I have a farm and I was working on the farm and pretty sure I injured it before then, but it just happened to become an issue while I was lifting a log and ended up in the emergency room and discovered that I have degenerative disc disease and that led down, herniated a couple of discs and that led down a whole path. And so as part of that process of how do I, particularly at a young age, how do I not let this deteriorate further, but also, you know, start to strengthen things and potentially counteract some of the effects of as a computer programmer sitting for 12 hours a day for 10 years, you know, how do you fix that? And so that got me into martial arts, which got me into lifting, which got me into rucking, which got me into like just all sorts of different physical activities. And then that unlocked the, through some of those things that unlocked other things like As I got deeper into martial arts, I recognized that I could better control myself in meetings, specifically like better control my ego, better control my temper, better control, you know, all of the things that are happening around me. And it made me more centered and made me more confident and maybe, you know, so like that becomes a reinforcing cycle in in its own way to, to want you to keep doing those things in addition to the benefits I felt in my body. And then that gets you to start asking the next question of like, well, what if I introduced meditation? What if I introduced a prayer? What if I, you know, like other types of training to even reinforce some of the positive things I was seeing. And so started to do meditation and some other things as well, which all tie into Japanese martial arts anyway. So it's kind of like this all virtuous circle. But mm. for me, the external catalyst was had nothing to do with business. It was a very unique, physical, traumatic event that happened that got me going down mm. a path that then, because I saw all the benefits that that had in my work life, I just leaned into it. Yeah, a lot of times when we hear of a trauma like that, it's just like, oh, that sucks. And we focused on the negative, but it sounds like you really focused on, okay, what can I learn from this? What can I gain from this? And, you know, you never wish something like that on anyone. But at the same time, you look at how that led you down this different path. What would you say before that was, you know, if you were to describe this almost like the savagery unredeemed, because I hear you there is a part of savagery that is a part of your brand. It's just getting stuff done and just focusing on people or encouraging people to like, go do it, go get your hands dirty. But like before this traumatic event and what you learned from that, how would you have described like that savage state unredeemed for you? There are plenty of people who are smarter than me. There's nobody who's going to outwork me. And that's still true to this day, by the way. So (laughs) that's why I still consider myself a savage. The ability to multiply and the self-awareness and self-care, those allow me to get more done. They're amplifiers of the hard work I was already doing. Mm -hmm. When I reflect on everything I do now today and think back, like what would me of 10 years ago said if I told that person, you're going to do everything you're doing today, plus you're going to do this and this and this and this, like that person just would have laughed in my face. Like, sure I am. Right. I reflect on that and I think, man, 10 years from now, if I can do this now, what am I going to be doing 10 years from now mm-hmm. as I continue to build capacity and do more and surround myself with people who can help me do more and like just all of those things. So if I look back and would say, what was the hallmark of what got me started on that path? It was just the ability to work hard, to do like do the job that nobody else wants to do have no ego in it, do it the best to your ability. And you will get recognized for that. And then that will attract a certain class of people to you who also want to work hard, who also tend to be less ego focused and are willing to do whatever it takes to win to get the job done. 
if I think about like what made me successful early on, it, it's just that. Yeah, I appreciate that answer. I'm also going to pry and ask you to be a little bit vulnerable in terms of the savagery and what I mean by kind of the unredeemed part of that. There's always this emotional, psychological, be a relational cost to that, that as you evolve toward that sage place, hopefully there's less of that cost because like you said, you're starting to take care of yourself. And I'm just curious back then, could you speak to any of the emotional psychological cost that that savagery had on you? I don't know if I can. I don't know that I carried. Arguably, I'm probably emotionally and psychologically worse today than I was 10 years ago. So uh, I'm not sure that self-care does everything you think it does. But I also got a lot more going on. I didn't have kids 10 years ago. I didn't have a farm 10 years ago. I didn't have a bunch of businesses 10 years ago. I only had one. I mean, the me of 10 years ago was much more free and less stressed than the me of today. I mean, I don't know if you're going to get the answer you want there. Got it. So you're breaking the prototype of what? That feels right. Yeah. <laughs> it's not, I promise it's not on purpose, but I didn't carry, I mean, 10 years ago, I didn't carry a lot of baggage. Got it. Yeah. So talk about, I know you've like publicly about being a farm owner and that lifestyle, you know, a lot of times entrepreneurs aren't necessarily choosing that. There's a rare few. They're usually going to be really close to the city, wherever their work is, close to an airport. What prompted that choice for you to have that lifestyle? Well, first and foremost, when we started Developer Town, we lived in Carmel. I think Carmel is an awesome place to live. And in our first year of Developer Town, we got pregnant with our first kid. And we reflected on how we wanted to raise that kid and where we wanted to raise our children in general, even though we only had one. And when we looked back at our childhoods, my wife and I, we recognized that meaningful work was an important part of that experience. And so we wanted to create a space where our children would get an opportunity to have meaningful work. Meaningful work being defined as if you don't clean your room, really the only trauma there is your parents are unhappy with you. Like that's it. Kids don't care if the room is clean. Only parents care if the room is clean, unless you have an OCD kid, which does happen occasionally. <laughs> but um, but for the most part, there's no like good reason why a room should be clean outside of don't leave food on the floor so ants come. But like, so what if somebody leaves laundry on the floor? What's the problem with that? Mm-hmm. But they're going to do it when they get to college. So why not do it now? Like what we mean by meaningful work is like the work is self-evident. If you don't feed the sheep, the sheep will die. If you don't water the pigs, the pigs will die. So you don't have to explain why this work needs to be done. The the person just knows to do it. And so as we reflected on that, we said, let's go build a farm. And so neither of us grew up on farms, so we have no idea what we're doing. We bought a house out in the country, and then every year we basically have added something new to the farm or taken on a significant new project to to slowly make it bigger. And as our family grew. Uh, We now have two boys and one of them is obviously significantly older, going to turn 11 in a couple of days. Their responsibility has grown with the farm and everything that we do as well. So I think the number one driver was how do we create an environment for our kids that is going to create the space for them. The secondary effect of that and the thing that I've leaned into over the years is that as an introvert, being on a farm offers me a bunch of benefits as well. I get two hours of driving a day, which is two hours of me not having to interact with other humans. I can listen to books. I can just space out and think. I can 
basically do whatever I want with that time. It gives me a buffer between leaving work and getting home. So that is time that every day is always mine. On weekends, I can go out into the woods and run a chainsaw, swing a hammer, building fences, you know, do something that is both physical, which is a relief, but is also I'm not around other people. Or if I am around other people, it's just one of my sons creating one-on-one time for us. So for me, that ability to unplug is super important. I've been at your farm on weekends, you know, and it's just fun to be a a part of that. I know similarly as an introvert and someone that is needs that physical release when most of my work, you know, is sitting at a computer or on the phone or in meetings. I think that's such a huge part to help with self-care. I know you've spoken to that as well. And since we work in the same building, I've also seen you come back on Mondays pretty sore from whatever, <laughs> whatever you've done that past weekend. So... You know you did your weekend correctly if you're viewing Monday as a break. Like, you're just like, oh, thank goodness I get to go to work tomorrow. That's awesome. So I also like to think about you've made this evolution yourself from that every entrepreneur makes. You know, you do it yourself, you figure it out yourself. But then at some point, you have to multiply and you have to delegate. You have to give it to a team of other people. How have you known, like, first off, these are the right people for me to build with, to give this over to? And then second of all, how have you, like, let go of things that you had been doing before and now, like, entrusting that to someone else to take the baton and run with it? So this is still of the three areas you mentioned on this podcast, self-awareness, self-care, and the ability to multiply. This is by far my weakest If you looked at my calendar today, you would see a series of activities that look very similar to my calendar 10 years ago in terms of the types of things that I'm doing. I think the difference for me today versus back then is that I'm I'm potentially doing them at a different scale and across more opportunities. So an example of that is the type of operations-focused things that I might have done in developer town 10 years ago, Julie does that today, arguably does it way better than I did. So that's good. But I'm still doing those things. I'm just doing them in a full stack or a tenant tracker, or, you know, I'm thinking through those same types of problems just in in another context. So while I, you know, I do think growing the team and bringing in other leaders who can either compliment me in a pretty significant way or have a different experience and area of focus that allow them to get a lot more leverage allow us as a team to get a lot more leverage. I certainly am better at doing that, but that doesn't mean I've moved away from the things that I did early on. I still do all those things. I just do them in a different way and across more companies. (laughs) So I know for a fact that a lot of leaders who have focus and focus on one company struggle with the fact that like, yeah, I used to do this and now I have to give that up. Well, I've never had to do that. I used to do it. I still do it. I've never had to give it up. Maybe I gave it up in developer town and gave it to Julie, or maybe I, when we brought Keith into tenant tracker, maybe he took some of those things or, you know, when Dawn took over CEO and full stack, she took some of those things, but I still get to scratch the itch that made me excited about all of these businesses to begin with. I still get to get my hands dirty and do the things that I love. And so this is where I, you know, while I, have found ways to amplify my effectiveness by growing the team around me and surrounding myself with people who are smarter than me, I still do all of the things that I did before, largely. Mm -hmm. 
having worked with you, I would say though, that you have, and it feels like this is a result of your own work that you've done post back accident of like, you have a way of asking the right question to help me. And then a number of other people that I know you lead to think through things differently to kind of seek and find the answer that we're needing. Whereas like a lot of leaders, I would say, are typically just like spout off, here's what you should try, here's what you should do. It feels like you have taken that approach. I'm going to ask the right questions and listen to help you unlock like the answer, which I think is a huge part of multiplication. So was there ever a shift for you where you're just like, I have been doing it this way and now I'm going to ask more questions? Or is that, like, would you say that's more of a natural wiring? So I started my career in consulting and did consulting for a long period of time. And I want to say it might have been 2000, maybe 2001. I read a book called The Secrets of Consulting by Jerry Weinberg. If it wasn't secret number one, rule number one, it was pretty close to rule number one. The first rule of consulting is the client already knows the answer to the problem. So your job as a consultant is not to come in and drop your sage wisdom and tell somebody all of the answers. They know the answers. They just either aren't confident in the answers. They're not listening to the person inside the organization who has the answer. And so your job is to help amplify that voice. There's some other interference is happening that's preventing them from moving forward on the solution that they already know is the solution. Mm -hmm. So as a consultant, your job is to help unlock whatever friction has them bound up around not moving forward with execution on that thing. Mm -hmm. That was really powerful for me as an early consultant. It really changed the way that I viewed my role when I stepped into an organization. And it has always stuck with me, even working with founders today, or if I'm coaching somebody. So when you're stuck, you know the answer to the problem, typically. And my job is to just help you see that answer, give you confidence in that answer, and or help you run a process that's going to get you to the answer rather than me giving it to you. This also goes back to ownership. You know, if it's my idea, if I just tell you, well, Daniel, what you need to do here is X, Y, and Z. If that fails, you have no ownership in that failure. You're just going to say, well, I tried what Michael said and it didn't work. So I guess he's not as smart as I thought he was versus if instead I get you to come to the idea of, oh, we should try X, Y, and Z. Now it's your idea, even if it's the same thing I would have said. Mm -hmm. And so when you're executing, you're now executing from a place of ownership, not from, oh, well, this person told me I should try this thing. Mm -hmm. That's also an important part of it. So even to the extent that you're not 100% sure that this is the right answer and you're running an experiment, which is a big part of startups and starting businesses and trying things for the first time, you're going to execute better because it's your idea and not mine. Anytime I come in and tell you that what to do or what the answer is, you have no ownership of that answer. What I know of your personality, though, and people like you that are wired like you are typically the ones that are giving the answer. They're like more blunt, more direct. So it feels like you've had to pause at some point and be like, yeah, I'm not going to do that. And so I commend you for that because the people that I've interacted that are like you, I feel like they've been the ones historically, at least in my experience, that are just like, they have to resist coming in and telling people what to do and giving people the answer. Well, I don't like it when people do that to me. So I would hate to do that to others. Obviously, I'm sure I do that in some places of my life, but I don't like it. So why would I do it to somebody else? Yeah. It's good. Well, I appreciate you giving us a little bit of a window into to you and your savage to sage journey and 
also in some ways how you break sort of the stereotype of like, I once was doing it this way and now I'm doing it this way and everything's so much better as a result of that. But I would say that especially the part you shared early on of like how you've evolved from the back accident and what sort of practices you've been involved in as a result of that, that to me is like, yeah, that's evolution. And that is like, you had something hard happen to you. And as a result, you've learned and grown and had to reinvent yourself in some ways. So I'll let you uh, flip the mic on me. And um, the whole idea here is just to give people in a window of like, why did I start this in the first place? Why is this so important to me? And so I'll hand it over to you. Yeah, I'll I'll maybe kick things off with why those three pillars, why self-awareness, self-care, and the ability to multiply. Why did you pick those as the focus for the podcast? I think it's basically just learning the hard way, both for myself and then for a number of other leaders. And so when this concept came about, I had seen the same story happen probably 10 times over, both in myself and other people. And that was leaders weren't aware of what motivated them. So why do they do what they do? Why do they do it the way that they do it? And then secondly, they um, were just running themselves into the ground. So there wasn't a lot of focusing on their health, you know, and I think of health holistically, you know, mental, psychological, physical, nutritional. And then third, we've kind of hit on this recently, they were set up as sort of like the organization revolved around them. It was about what wisdom they had, what vision they brought. There was just a lot of ego around what direction the organization were going, just rode on like that person telling them what to do. And I went down that path, but I'm a different wiring than and a different motivation than a lot of the people that I saw. And I would say in my early to mid twenties, I experienced burnout, like a lot of the the folks that I'm describing did. And my burnout experience was not what I observed in other people, where there was typically a big, like I saw a lot of major falls for leaders, people having affairs, laundering money, you know, think of like worst case scenario of what happens when, you know, leaders have a public falling. That happened a lot around me when those three things weren't practiced. And then it, for me, it was just like exhaustion. I had major like physical issues, like digestive issues. I just was struggling to stay passionate about what I was doing. You know, at that time I was in helping professions. And so you're seeing people that are suffering. The organizations I was a part of, we were serving very vulnerable people. And so I just had lost the motivation and passion for caring for them in that process because it like the need never stopped and I just kept going. I kept serving. So you're smiling. Yeah. I started laughing because you said you were back then you were serving. How did you say it? Very vulnerable. And was it stressed out people like something like stressed and vulnerable people? I I can't remember it exactly, but you're still doing that. That's the mission of full stack too. Yeah. (laughs) Well, that's the crazy thing is like when you invited me on the journey with full stack, it's like, okay, how am I going to transition to serving? You know, the prototype full stack client is like this tech entrepreneur. And I realized, and a mentor helped me to realize too, it's like the same person. It's the same person. It's just instead of running a mission driven nonprofit organization, 
they're running a technology startup or scale up. And it's like the person's typically crazy. They're insane. They don't necessarily take the best care of themselves. They're usually a visionary person that's like out in the future, like five years thinking about like, if we do this, this and this, what could this lead to? And then they always need money. So I think you nailed it. Yeah. (laughs) So that profile was the person that I, I was serving. And but then, you know, I had my own journey of, of burnout and my own practice of self-awareness, self-care, and then multiplying was what really kind of took me out of that and into like a better state of mind, state of being than where I was before. So you use the phrase self-care and I don't think of what I do as self-care. I understand it in the context of the concept of self-care and it like certainly from one lens if I looked at what I did, like, I don't feel weird saying I practice self-care based on your definition of self-care, but I would never classify what I do as that. I'm not doing it because I work a lot and I know I should have some concept of work-life balance. I think work-life balance is bullshit. You have one life. You don't have two lives. You're not trying to balance them. You have one life. So I don't think about it as like, I'm doing a bunch of damage to myself over here at work and I need to undo that damage over here. Yeah. To me, it's just like, no, the human I want to be, the way that I want to show up, the savagery that I get to have in martial arts, like this is just who I want to be. Like this is the version of me that wants to exist now. Yeah. And so for me, it's not self-care. It's like I'm going to the dojo whether I feel like it or not. I'm going to ruck if I'm injured or not. Like right. in many cases, I'm, I'm not practicing self-care from that perspective. Yeah. So like for you – Do you think of it when you use that word? Are you envisioning this concept of like, I'm using this to undo the damage and heal that is happening over here in my work? Or is it just like, no, man, this is just who you are. This is your DNA. You're going to do these things anyway. Yeah, that's a good question. I like to differentiate it because self-care has become defined in our culture of like, what do you not do? You know, and it's almost like, so I do all of these things for work and self-care is like, I'm doing this other set of things that I don't do for work, helping me to heal from the crazy pace or, you know, crazy intensity stress that I have at work. I like to think of it more as soul care and soul could be interpreted in so many different ways, but I'd like to define it as nurturing the most important parts of your being as a human. And so even though you get up at crazy hours and you're going to the dojo and you're contorting your body in crazy ways, it's like, in that process, you're caring for like the most important part of your being. There's something in there that's giving you life and that's helping you to keep going. Same time, you know, when you put the ruck on, for me, it would be like, I need to go into nature and go into the woods and just sweat, whether that's physical labor, whether that's a trail run. There's something about getting away from screens and getting back into nature, breathing the air in the woods, you know, that just helps me to nurture what's most important. And I find that creativity typically flows out of that. Like if I have a creative block and I just can't think of like, how do I find a new solution in this scenario? Or what do I do with this person in this relationship, this conflict? If I can do something with soul care, it unlocks that creativity that's gotten locked up and it forces me to think about what if I approach it this way? What if I try this idea? That's how I think of self-care as opposed to like, you know, I drank 
white wine and watch I binged on Netflix for four hours or I got my favorite Starbucks drink. This is like, how do I nurture these most important parts of my being that is really the source of like my life and my creativity and my ability to be the parent, be the friend, be the leader that I, I long to be and I'm created to be. When you think of self-awareness, what are you trying to get at when you say a leader as a sage is more self-aware than they were as a savage? What does that mean to you? They understand the deep, mostly subconscious motivation for why they do what they do. Let me just give an example. So when there is a major conflict that exists between me and my wife would probably be the best example, but then also like someone else at full stack, that's a key stakeholder, whether it's like another leader on our team or whether it's like a key client of ours, if there's a conflict that exists, what I've realized about myself is that I am going to like, typically if I'm not careful, I'm going to become an anxious mess and like go to worst case scenario of like, Oh, what could go wrong here? What's the worst possible thing that could happen? And I get caught in like almost this ball of anxiety, like around that. And then B, it's like, how can I make this conflict go away as quickly as possible? What could I do? What could I say? How could I apologize? How could I phrase it to make it go away? And I think before that just happened to me, it happened in my body. And I just kind of was on autopilot and I just reacted and I did the things to, like I described, to make that happen right away. And I didn't know why, but I just did it. And then that sometimes it worked, but a lot of times it just got me into more trouble and it compounded situations. Like, for example, sometimes just apologizing and like taking fault and ownership for something to make it go away. I was taking ownership for things that weren't necessarily my issue, but I just wanted the conflict to go away. So I was willing to take the fall for that, but it didn't actually help or heal the situation or relationship. And so now when something like that happens, I'm aware of like, here's where I would normally go in this situation and play out like the five different things that I would normally do. But I can pause and say, you know, what needs to be done? What's important here? to bring healing to a situation or to truly resolve a conflict and make the best possible outcome for everyone. And I think because I'm aware of like my ego's motivations are not actually going to be the most helpful outcome for this relationship or for our business long-term. And so if I can stop myself before going on that autopilot reaction, I can help, you know, us, lead to a better outcome. So, so how do you actually do that? So you and I are arguing about a thing, why we lost a client, why we lost an opportunity, a strategy for how we're going to sell next year, what, whatever. And we get into a disagreement and you can feel the tension of us disagreeing. You feel the tension of maybe my voice is escalating. Maybe I'm physically getting more mm-hmm. present, you know, whatever. Right. Like, so tempers are starting to go up. What heuristics, triggers, actions, like what are you actually doing in that moment? What's today's Daniel, the self-aware Daniel, Mm -hmm. doing in the moment that the prior Daniel wasn't? Yeah, so in that scenario, prior Daniel would have just believed that 
I wouldn't been, have been able to articulate this, but believe that my voice and my presence doesn't matter. And so I would automatically merge with the opinion of the strongest voice in the room. So like if you had the stronger opinion or let's say Dawn was in the room, she had the stronger opinion, then even if I felt inner turmoil and I disagreed, I wouldn't speak up because what was more important was for that conflict just to go away. And so like, I'm just going to go with the strongest voice and then typically be disappointed and resentful, like that that's the way we went and probably resentful toward myself that like, I didn't speak up when I really had a strong belief about where we should go. And so now what I'm doing is there's some self-talk that just happens in a moment. It's like, Daniel, you need to speak up. I take deep breaths. I remind myself of like, Daniel, if you don't speak up and you do what you did before, here's what's going to be the result, both for you and for this company, for the team. I remind myself of the consequence if I don't do it, but then also like how it resonates with a value of like, I have a value of being an owner and being a healthy voice at the table here. And I need to show up. I need to speak up here. And so I go through this self-talk breathing. Sometimes, you know, if I do have space, I'll go for a quick walk and just like, I'm talking like five minutes just to collect myself and be like, okay, here's how I'm going to approach this. I would also say I have to ask people around me that I trust to say, like, I need your help in these moments. Like, this is what's normally going to happen. Like, I'm just going to shut down and merge with whatever you think. If you have a stronger opinion, I need you to not let me do that. And so it's asking people that you trust that are around you that are safe to be like, you know, help me to not do what my ego would typically take me to do (laughs) and help draw that out. Even if it's you sense it's uncomfortable for me and it's uncomfortable for you to like kind of pry that out of me. Like I need help with that. In the context of a startup, what does it mean to multiply? I think the biggest thing that I'm learning, again, I'm just going to make it personal, is every day it's naming these are the three most important priorities. And maybe some days it's only going to be one. But I have to put all of my best energies toward executing on that priority when there's going to be 20 other things that are thrown at me. My personality has a tendency to do the 20 things because it's like I perceive them as, oh, those are quick and easy things. And I will do that to the neglect of like, that's everybody, but that's not just you. Yeah, that's all of us. But but that's like, as a startup founder, leader, you're always like seeing 25 things on a daily basis. And it's how do you select what's the most important thing? And then being able to ask for help when you can't accomplish that priority on your own. And I think eventually being able to, as you grow a team, being able to give over some of those priorities, like a product manager role or like a COO role, giving over these things that you can do, you have done to get the company off the ground, but your priorities become different as you grow more into a CEO role and you have a team that you need to empower and then allow other folks to do that because you need to be at the tip of the spear 
seeing five years out as well as for most startup CEOs being the primary salesperson <laughs> slash conflict manager with clients and sometimes with your team members. So yeah, I'd say is continually evolving and what are my priorities and how can I give away the things that are not my priorities, whether it's just not doing them and you used to do them or you're giving them to other people to do. How many of these podcasts have you done? I think I'm at about 50 at this point. So in 50 episodes, what is your biggest takeaway tool, tip, technique, experience in each of the categories, self-awareness, self-care, the ability to multiply? Like what are some of the stories you've heard that have really kind of scarred you, stuck with you around each of those buckets? I think the, the biggest thing is probably around what you said about work-life balance being a fallacy. <laughs> I think I came into this wanting work-life balance to be real because I felt like it served such a huge need for me and for the people that I love the most. And then what I realized is hearing the story of so many successful entrepreneurs that I have is like, for most of them, that's a fallacy. You know, this is a cliche, but it's become more of like work-life integration. But it's also having some clear boundaries. Like I know you've shared about how like you don't really bring a laptop to your house unless it's like a desperate emergency time. Yep. And so it's how do you integrate work and life and how do you set appropriate boundaries? So that's the thing that I'm like struggling with the most. And I think the people that I've seen be most successful have this ability to shut off work and be fully present at home. And they've done the work required to do that. And then the opposite, like shut off home and focus on work when needed. And even when the crappiest things at home happen and you're bringing that with you, like someone's sick, something's going on, you had this major conflict, that ability to like, okay, I have to shut that off. I'm still me. That's still going on, but I've got to go sell this deal. Like that is what is probably the biggest challenge. And I think how I've been confronted the most with the people that have been most successful, because I'll tell you, honestly, if my wife was sitting on the microphone here, like my ability to shut off the mental noise from like a day of full sack is like very hard right now. And to truly be attuned and present to what she needs, what she wants, you know, what my kids need, what they want, what they want to share with me, my ability to ask good questions of them. Like that's where I would say is the biggest challenge. And I think the people that I admire the most and I've learned the most from like do that really well. What's your belief on how much of that is nature versus nurture? I feel like I've always been good at compartmentalizing my life. I'm sure I'm better at it. It is a muscle I've exercised and so it's gotten stronger, mm -hmm. but I, it was always there. I didn't have to learn it. It always kind of happened naturally. So is it something you can learn? If so, how? I do think there's a nature component to it. I do think people wired like you that I've known have this ability just to be fully present in a situation and be awesome. And then they move on to the next thing and they're not caring what happened in that last interaction or what happened yesterday. Yep, you can um, call us psychopaths. That's, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's who we are. Yeah. People like you, psychopath. <laughs> that's not what I meant. Um, but um I do think there is a nurture component to it. And I think of 
what's worked the best for me is having some sort of transition exercise where it's like for you, like I know the drive home yeah. is probably that. It's a ritual. Yes, um, for sure. Where it's like, can you create some rituals, whether it's a 10 minute drive home or an hour like it is for you, where whether you listen to a meditation, a podcast, you call someone that has nothing to do with work, you listen to ACDC, like whatever that ritual is. I think there's some marker like between home and work that has helped me the most and um, to not allow things to bleed into home. And so the one thing that I've done most recently that's probably been the most successful is I will listen to very upbeat music that you can dance to. And then like when I come home, I move it off of like my ear pods or my car and I turn on my speaker at home and that song continues. And if kids and wife are not always in the mood for dancing, but like, that's just cause they're not Taylor Swift fans. Right. <laughs> Taylor Swift is sometimes on the playlist, but it just allows, you know, that transition. And then like almost that joy of like, Hey, I'm home and I'm ready to like engage with you. It um, also means you have walk on music, which is, Kind of baller, actually. Right. Yeah, it changes almost every time, though. So I like it. Well, um, Mike, thanks for uh, being willing to interview me and just get a, a little bit into my head and heart around, you know, why I started this. I really want the audience to know, like, yeah, this is what's motivating me to keep going to like go through a, a season two with more episodes and interview more people. So thank right you. Happy to do it. Thank you for listening to today's interview. To view show notes or hear more episodes, please visit www.savagetosage.com.